Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed Local Provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, security sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house and giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. I'm Steve Marber, a certified financial planner and an investment advisor with 19 years' experience in providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis. I'm a Dave Ramsey preferred local provider. also have an MBA in finance and have been helping corporations and individuals for over 20 years. We're excited to have you listening to us today on our weekly radio show. We are right here every Saturday like today from 9 to 10 a.m. You can also go to our website, moneymd.net. We have a link in the top right-hand corner that you can stream us. Uh, Also, obviously, on the dial, 1230 a.m. is where you can hang out with us if you're tooling around the CSRA or wherever you're hanging out this morning. Yeah, and if you work around the house, you know, the, the, the great way to listen, I think, is to use a smartphone. Mm-hmm. You download the TuneIn Radio app. You can uh, tune us in right there on your smartphone, carry that around with you. and Schedule it. You know, right, working out in the yard yeah. and the heat or whatever it is <laughs> you want to do today, you can do it right there while listening to Money MD. So, uh stay with us. Tune in there. Um, all right, we're going to start off here, though. Um, you know, we... Um, we have a great show line up today, John. Good um, topics. We have some good topics here. We're going to talk about money and marriage. I mean, there's not many more things in marriage that are more important than being on the same page about money. Because mm-hmm. it's one of the leading causes of divorces um, in the U.S. And so uh, we're going to talk about the six ways money can destroy your marriage and how to prevent that. And we got kind of a two-part series. We're going to cover the first half today yeah. and it's important so you want to tune in for that yeah that's good and we're going to follow that up with a, an article from dave ramsey um pretty well written article here and it's good discussion about buying a house versus renting a house and and we're going to bust three common myths associated with that so a lot of a lot of heartache over the last um, number of years when you think about um, the housing market and what it's gone through so you know one of the things that we see when we work with folks is sometimes a housing can be a curse versus a blessing and so we'll kind of dive into that a little bit as we go through that topic. And then we're going to finish up with an article uh, that talks about how impatience hurts retirement saving and kind of diving into the emotional side a little bit, what we right. see from the markets. And, you know, there's a lot of news out there that's scary sometimes, and it gets people emotional about what they uh, what they do. So we're going to kind of give you some prescriptions on, on how, to, how to fix that and how to kind of block some of those things out. Great topics. All right. But we're going to start off here, though, with the financial fact of the week. Yeah, this comes from the Federal Reserve. And as of um, March the 31st, 2014, the average American had a debt, total debt, that was equal to 106% of their after-tax income. And that's down from 131% back in 2007. Ouch. So... Right trend, but that still seems like a big number. It does. 106%, 106% of their income. Um, you know, I mean, I guess if you have a home mortgage, you can understand that. Um, certainly would be more than your annual income for most people. But at the same time, you know, if you have two earners in the family, then mm-hmm. that's double that. Um, 
So well, it, I don't know. It's a big number, and particularly for average, because you would think, you know, if you take out a 15-year mortgage and you pay it down over time, you know, the average should be a lot less than that. So yeah, people it, it, are highly leveraged. That's the bottom line. Yeah, we see that. Um, some of the stats that we see people going into retirement, um, unfortunately, they have mortgages. Um, right. And so that average, there are some people that have much less than that, but unfortunately, there's some folks that have a lot more than that. But I think the the positive out of that is the trend is at least to, to deleverage a little bit. Um, I think that we see consumer spending, you know, ticking up a little bit because there's a little bit of deleveraging that's gone on, which has that's been right. helpful. Right. So anyway, interesting fact of the week, no doubt. And uh, also don't want to forget to welcome our uh, new advisor, uh, Gordon Leppard, with us again today. Thank you, Steve. Yeah. Thanks, for, thanks for joining us. Good Chime in here. Uh, anytime. All right. We're going to start off here, though, with our first topic of the week, and that is um, six ways money can destroy your marriage and how to prevent it. Um, you know, this is, is such an important topic, and we've talked about this before, but it's been a long time. You know, money problems, I mean, we see this all the time as a financial planner. Money problems are one of the leading mm-hmm. causes of divorce in the U.S. and one of the leading causes of just disharmony yes. in marriage. You know, I sat down with a couple just yesterday that are having some money issues, and you could tell they were not on the same page. Mm-hmm. You know, they see were, those looks or the body position. Yeah, the, or... <laughs> the body language was not yeah. good in the room, <laughs> I can tell you, you know, and yeah. it was... You know, complete surprise to one of the one of the two, and uh, you know, you just can't let that happen. I mean, you got to be on the same page when it comes to money in marriage. It's just way too important. And uh, so, we're going to talk about three of the issues today, and then we're going to follow up next week with the other three issues um, in marriage. But you know, I mean, I've been happily married for twenty eight years uh, to just an angel, <laughs> you know, and. Um, she is an angel to she, be married to you for 28 she, years. I right. say that. She is, she is very, <laughs> very tolerant, isn't she? Isn't she? Uh, what an angel. But, yeah, I mean, no doubt. I mean, it's we've had a wonderful marriage. And, and um, yeah, I've been a financial planner for 19 years, so I've lived and seen all of these issues. And, you know, while we marry for romantic reasons, marriage is, is really is a financial union you know, between two people. So you have to be on the same page financially. Everything comes back to finances. It, it really Whether does. Whether it's golf I mean, or marriage or vacations all, or... It all boils down. All you got to have the finances to do just about anything, don't you? You mm-hmm. know, and so it comes down to priorities and decisions. And we all know there are a lot, a lot of values and priorities and there's wants and don't wants. They boil down to dollars and cents. Yeah. Yeah, really and that's great that you've been married 28 years. I'm I'm getting close to that, 23 years. So it's um, seen a lot of a lot of challenges as well. And communication obviously is is so important in this. But you know, some couples um, you know may work long hours to afford a second home. Others may cut back on the amount that they work and, and budget to spend their their time with their family. But you know, anyone who's been married for a long time knows that harmony and finances truly is one key to a happy marriage. It is, yeah. It comes down to priorities. You know, like you said, I mean, people have different priorities in marriage. And finances, unfortunately, is one of those emotionally packed issues um, since it's driven from values. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, those decisions you make are, are, are driven from, you know, what do you think's important in your life? And so, you know, I heard the late Larry Burkett say one time, show me your checkbook mm-hmm. and I could tell you where your heart is. And we all know that it's true. You know, I mean, your checkbook really does reflect where your priorities are and where your values are. 
Um, so, you know, fair warning here. We might get under your skin a little bit if you're listening today. I mean, this is a touchy topic. Um, so we might step on some toes. So, you know, put on your thick skin and, and get real because this is way too important to ignore. And if you're married, you, you know what I mean? I mean, money issues are right up there with kids. And then if you combine the two, I mean, it really is kind of a powder keg. Mm-hmm. You know, between the two, there's a very emotional issues. Um, so, and it often comes down to priorities. I mean, you have to be willing to compromise and give up some pride. Studies show that 57% of divorces are are related to money issues is one of the leading reasons for divorce. Um, and like I said, it comes down to priorities. Guys want to spend money oftentimes on vacations. At least for me, that's that's true. <laughs> you know, tools, hobbies, um, wives. On the other hand, a lot of times it's it, they want to spend money on their kids, on comfort items, on gifts, um, decor for the house, um, a dependable car. You know, um, it, so it, it, there really are big gapping differences in our values as husbands and wives. I mean, I know a couple in our extended family who were barely making ends meet, and he went and spent a lot of money on selfish items. Um, and it was a big issue in their family. So, you know, that blows the whole budget. That makes the, the wife typically feel insecure financially. Mm-hmm. And that's a big deal to any spouse, any wife particularly. I mean, security is, yeah. is usually a big deal. Absolutely. Dave, Dave Ramsey has a um, course. It's called Financial Peace University. It's a nine-week course. And they reshot it um, within the last year, and he basically came out and said, instead of a financial course, this is a marriage course. Um, right. You know, it really is. And and Dave has taught me personally, and I've seen this as I've gone through through time that, you know, um, women value security. You know, having an emergency fund. So, you know, you blow the budget, and you're really encroaching on her one of her core fears. And you know, guys on the other hand value respect. And so, you know, you take away the control over the spending, and that incites you know the the guy's core fear as well. So. Um, you know, blow your budget, and it goes way beyond just the finances. All of a sudden, you're stepping on core fears, and that's what kind of starts to, to uh, you know, snowball. Right, and that's why communication really is the key, right? I mean, you have to talk through these issues and agree to avoid these pitfalls. Um, yeah, when Kathy and I were first married, we had an old, uh, uh, well, rather than an old car back then, it was, you know, pretty new. It was a Renault Alliance, but it was the worst car I ever had by far. It was it was just. I don't think they're limit. producing those anymore, are they? I know they can't be. I mean, <laughs> heaven forbid. You know that was that was a uh, just a disaster of a car in my book. In fact, it left us on our honeymoon, and it cost me big dollars to get it repaired while we were stranded on our honeymoon. So <laughs> you know, you can't forgive any car for that. Uh, but then I bought a used truck as a second vehicle, and after about a year and a half of that that Renault Alliance leaving her, she drove the Renault. Um, it was obvious that having a dependable car was much more important to her than it was to me. You know, I mean, I grew up tinkering with old cars, so, you know, I didn't have any money when I, when I was a kid. So, you know, I could keep them running. I could I could work on it. But, you know, for her, I mean, before cell phones getting left on the road, I mean, that was a big deal for her. So after a year and a half of that, I finally got a clue. I said, okay, this is really important to her. You know, she didn't want to get left on the road again. So I gave up my timetable on the house. You know, we were saving really hard for a house back then. And uh, so I went ahead and bought a new car to get her, you know, some secure transportation. And I think you just have to communicate. It just shows communication is a big part of all of these. 
um, you have to be on the same page financially. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's an area where we, we fell short when we first got married. So we'll come back from the break. We'll jump right into these. But um, if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net. Or you can give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD with John and Steve. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Margaret, a certified financial planner. And I'm with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey preferred local provider, and um, Gordon Leppard, who's our new advisor in the office. And um, we're continuing our discussion here before the break about the six ways money can destroy your marriage and how to prevent that. And uh, we're going to cover the first three items today. And, you know, I mean, when we got into this, we just mentioned here before the break, I mean, how important it is to have communication and be mm-hmm. on the same page with values and priorities because. You know, every decision in marriage usually boils down to dollars and cents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. Right? I mean, it boils down to, you know, where are you going to spend your money? Yeah. And we know divorces, are, you know, a lot of them are caused by, by money. That's and it. And so if you don't discuss it, then, you know, that's where some of the issues come into play. Yeah, it's a big issue. And it's a big issue with kids. I mean, everything comes down to priorities. You know, I know we're talking about money here, but don't you think that that's uh, – Something that we should discuss even before we enter into marriage. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, not not trying yeah. to get into marriage yeah. counseling here, but yeah, you know, like like you said, it, it is a super important issue that uh, should yeah. definitely be addressed. I think we would strongly uh, encourage people going into that process. Time not there. Yeah, yeah, go through Financial Peace University. Sit down with your pastor and and talk to him about it because it's going to come up at some absolutely. point. Oh yeah, yeah, it's going to come up immediately when they get yeah, married. Right. <laughs> so you have how much day? You better have Plenty. an idea of. Yeah. What your future spouse, you know, thinks about money and spending and credit cards. Yeah, you find that. out right off the bat when you do the wedding thing. Yeah, it doesn't <laughs> take long, does it? No, no doubt. So it's uh, very, very important. So, yeah, jumping right into this, you know, the first the first uh, way that money can destroy your marriage if you don't do it right is not planning a budget together. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like baby step number one, right, in Dave Ramsey's, you know, uh, marriage thing. I mean, you got to have... You got to plan a budget together. Planning a budget together is a process that puts you on the same page financially. You know, you you have questions like, do you go on big vacations or do you spend money on kids and things for the house? Um, We were not on the same page when we first got married. You know, I love big vacations and Kathy loves spending money on people, kids, gifts. Um, so we had to compromise a little right out of the right off the bat. Yeah, and there there are a lot of issues that spouses usually disagree on. Um, you know, think about schooling, college, private school. Uh, how much do you pay for the kids' college? Um, do you try to save ahead for that? Retirement. You know, how does that fit into the picture? How important is it? I see a lot of um, disagreements on paying off the house early. Uh, that's usually in the mix of right. questions. So, you know, if you don't put these on the table and have a plan, it can get contentious. It really can. And, you know, I see a lot of couples that will segregate their money. You know, this is your money. This is my money. Um, And that could be a big mistake, too, you know. And that's one reason why budgeting together and agreeing on all the priorities is a big deal because, you know, if you're segregating your money, it sows disunity, selfishness. And it could be okay for, you know, a limited amount of discretionary money, right? Um, But be careful there. I mean, that creates friction, 
um, you know, for major expenses, because then you have to decide whose money do you use for mm-hmm. major expenses. So it's much better if you can pull your money together, even in a second marriage, so that it's mostly our money. Um, so work up a budget together, agree on limits, you know, go over the budget together, compromise um, to reflect some of each other's priorities in your budget. Communication really is the key here. You have to discuss each and every major expense and the problem categories because there are going to be some problem categories for everybody. Yeah, I would say second marriage is making sure that you look at your beneficiaries. I know that's a big question yeah. that couples have. Just talk about who's going to get which account and, and um, spend some time on it. That's right. Yeah, we sit down with people in second marriage, and sure. it's obvious they haven't discussed it. Yeah, right, right. It gets kind of ten, you know, tension rises yep. in the room when you get to the beneficiary page of uh, IRA <laughs> account form. But um, you know, successful couples they talk about money often and they come to agreement. So that's number one: planning a budget together. Number two is overspending your personal monthly budget, not respecting the limits that you set for things. Um, you know, everybody has their priorities for spending their money, and it's difficult for a husband and wife, and it, it's different, you know, I mean, for how much you want to spend on different items. I love to spend money on vacations, tools, golf. <laughs> do you like vacations? I, I do like vacations, John, you know, particularly if they include golf. And, yes. And maybe I buy a tool while I'm on vacation, so <laughs> it kind of all works together. A tool could be a new club, it right? Could, it could yeah. be. That's, that's a tool for me. And Kathy, you know, she's different, obviously. It's gifts, it's kids, it's creature comforts. I mean, that's where she likes to spend her money. And, uh, you know, we each budget like $200 each for our birthdays and Christmas and anniversary um, and that's kind of our own play money that we mm-hmm. can spend on anything. So we'll build that up and blow it on something big, um, you know, but maybe you save that in cash um, for most people. But if you overspend that limit that you set for each other, then it would normally be a big problem. Yeah, you have to respect, you know, these agreed upon limits. Um, and, you know, that shows respect for each other and overspending. Um, you know, these limits creates distrust and it also signals a lack of care, quite frankly, for the other person. So, you know, you also put the entire system at risk with financial strain um, and uh, it jeopardizes the other spouse's limit as well. So there's, you know, that personal money, um, you know, I see it as a big, big area that many people don't talk about, but it's, it right. can help. You know, John, whenever, uh, whenever you do put those parameters in place, it's freeing. It is. Because it, it yep. really shows right. you, it does. It gives you that, that map, that guide as to, hey, I know we're going to be able to do this this month. Uh, hopefully you have that emergency fund in place yep. just in case something does come up, you know. But it, it kind of gives you that roadmap that everyone's looking for. It is free. And it, 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 it is. It says that it's, it's okay like to spend. You know, you put it down, you talk about it, and if you go spend it, that's fine. It's in the budget. It's in the plan. Right. Yeah, I mean, just having a budget in general is very freeing, yeah, right? Good point. I mean, and uh, particularly, you know, having a certain amount of money that you agree on that you can spend however you want, and then that takes the arguments off the table. It doesn't always get us what we want as soon as we want it. Yeah. But at, no. at least it points us, you know, in the right direction. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it gets you on know, the same page. Keeps us going, moving forward. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, and the last one here on the list, and number three that we're going to talk about this week, is disagreeing on the priorities for spending. Um, you know, and that's part of budgeting, but, I mean, uh, what do you value? Do you value nice vacations, a nice car, having low debt, and financial stability? Um, everybody's different, and some people are more practical than others. I mean, I knew a young couple where 
the husband said, I love you with a new Jaguar for her. <laughs> but uh, that was totally not her love language. And immediately, you know, that, that started encroaching on her, you know, financial stability and security because all of a sudden they had these big payments they couldn't really afford. So who is he really trying to please? Yeah, right? that's right. Obviously, you know, it was it was itself. So I mean, don't turn a supposed gift into a wedge or financial stress. Um, you know how sometimes it's tempting to treat your spouse as something that you really want instead. You know that uh, that dream vacation for her when you're really the one that wants it. <laughs> so I mean, you know, she's not fooled by that, um, of course. Um, so. Uh, you know, I mean, you just have to discuss these items first. You have to, to make sure that you're speaking her love language mm-hmm. or your spouse's love language and not yours. Yeah. Do that, those kind of things. That's right. And and there's so many areas of conflict here on the priorities like we talked about, whether it be, you know, houses being paid for, cars, vacations, charities, kids. And, uh, you know, how much do you give to charities? Often one spouse wants to give to, to one charity more than the other. So, again, you've got to communicate and just talk about it and learn how to compromise and find ways to sacrifice and meet the middle. You can't always get your your preference. You've got to take, you know, uh, the other party's, um, you know, thoughts and values and feelings in, into play as well. It's It's important. Yeah, like a health club membership. My wife wanted that 15 years ago, so... You know, we compromised. She worked at Gold's Gym to get that free. She sacrificed for that um, so we could afford it back then. And uh, so don't be passive-aggressive, you know. I mean, and don't think it's going to be easier to ask forgiveness. That doesn't work either. So you have to disagree. You have to agree on those priorities and talk about it. So the takeaways here are, you know, money is way too important in marriage to ignore the issues. So communicate about money often. Yeah, that includes financial issues, goals, major expenses, and, you know, talk about it uh, as it comes up or, uh, you know, at least once a week. And um, compromise on your priorities so the budget reflects some of what both people want. Yeah, don't ignore the issues. Have a date night, you know, discuss your financial goals right now. I mean, I'd suggest that for anybody. Um, you know, go out and discuss it. And um, in part two, we'll discuss the, the the kids, debt management, and having honesty with money and marriage next week. Um, so you won't want to miss that. But uh, remember, kids and money, I mean, they're a powder keg in marriage, so you're going to have to you, – you need to tune in for that. That's a good part of the, the segment next week. And uh, But that leads up to our break here. Um, if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net, or you can give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD with John and Steve. We'll be right back after these messages and Jim and me. Stay with us. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner. I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey preferred local provider, and also Gordon Leppard, who is our new advisor in our office. And um, we're going to lead off our second segment here with the prescription of the week. Well, actually, the question of the week. Yeah, the question of the week is I have half of my 401k in my company stock, and we see that occasionally. And uh, work for a large, stable uh, Fortune 500 company. Feel very comfortable with them. Uh, you know, been around a long time. Should I diversify? So, of course. Yes, yes. Generally <laughs> speaking, I, I have heard Dave Ramsey talk on this, and generally having no more than 10% of your, your investments in one stock is the rule of thumb. We don't like that 
yeah, you know, 10%, but some people are, are tied to it. But I, I came across, I, I um, sat with a guy this last week and he had, oh, well over half a million dollars in like, there is in a 401k that you can put it into a, um, a brokerage account right. or a, uh, an account that you can trade stocks. He had everything in like four stocks. That's insane. And uh, he's wanting to retire like in like six months. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> you know, the big one of the biggest risks to his situation was is having it everything in, in four stocks. So, yes, you should. Yeah, I remember like 15 years ago, there was a broker here in town that, um, you know, was doing that for clients. I mean, mm-hmm. he put all their money in like five stocks. It was the dogs of the Dow at the time. Yep. And then he changed and started buying some technology stocks. But, you know, there was only like five stocks their entire retirement. And when the tech bubble burst back in 2000, I mean, those people lost 60, 70, 80% of their money. Yeah, came crashing down. And it was a disaster. Of course, he got sued and he was out of the business, you know, but um, those people were devastated. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just got to diversify. If you don't know that by now, after the financial crisis and companies like AIG and I mean, GE you know, was one of the a great company out there. Yeah, uh, had a tough 2008. Now they've recovered some, but I mean, Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. Yeah. Fannie Mae might as well have gone bankrupt. It was restructured. GM, if you own their stock, you you lost it all pretty much. Wachovia. Gone. Yeah, you lost almost all of it. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, by now, diversify. I mean, you got to diversify. So the answer is. Diversify, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, please, you know, for heaven's Just sake. Just making sure please. we weren't, you know, if someone yeah. didn't know if we were clear on that. Right, let's be clear on that. Right, exactly. All right, good question of the week. Okay, that leads up here to our next topic, and that is an article from uh, Dave Ramsey about buying versus renting a home, the three common myths busted. Yeah, you know, when weighing major life decisions, you know, everyone seems to have some answer out there. And, you know, some people say you should you should marry this person or drive that kind of car, have this many um, kids at a certain age. Uh, never mind if it's actually the best choice for you or not. Um, there's always people trying to help you out. But, you know, home ownership really is no different. Um, deciding whether to buy or rent always comes with a generous helping uh, of opinion from parents and friends and coworkers. So, you know, how do you separate fact from, from fiction? And that's what we're going to do. We're going to start by breaking down three of the common myths that, um, that we see out there. And, and Dave does a great job kind of getting to the, the crux here. Yeah, I tell you, you know, I mean, this is, this is one area that I think it really is a huge myth. And that is, um, you know, buying a home. Number myth number one was buying a home is a grown up thing to do. It's like the thing you automatically do once when you, you get, get married, married yeah. and you're out of the house and got your first big job. You immediately go buy a house, buy a home. Um, you know, many folks look at the home ownership as kind of a rite of passage into adulthood. And according to the National Association of Realtors, the typical first time homeowner really is 31 years old. That surprised me. Yeah, it did me too. I thought I mean, it would be you know in mid twenties. And it's probably changed in the last seven years since, oh, would, the, since the yes, housing bust, absolutely. right? Um, but, you know, so if you're 25 and you feel like you're behind the curve because you haven't bought a home, you know, yet, I mean, stop worrying about that. I mean, there's no reason to rush into that big purchase just because your friends or your family tell you it's what you're supposed to do. I mean, real grown-ups know when it's the smart money decision to make in, in every situation. And it's greatly limits your flexibility when you, when you move into a house and buy a house, mm-hmm. um, when you're not ready to, because then if you change jobs, you're tied down to that big mortgage. Yeah, that's right. And that, you know, like you mentioned, you know, during times of transition, renting for a year or two, 
um, gives you time to get your, your feet on solid ground um, before making this life-changing decision, you know, such as getting an emergency fund in place. That would be Yeah, we rented for five years when we first got married. Did you? We did, because our plan was to save enough money to pay cash for a house, mm-hmm. um, which I know is crazy, but we did. I mean, we... We basically um, saved Kathy's salary for five years. She's a school teacher. We lived off my salary, and we lived in an apartment because that was part of the plan, you know. And then so we wanted to pay cash for the first house. We didn't quite pay cash for the first house, but we bought the land, and we paid for like 70% of the house with cash. Had a very small mortgage. Fantastic, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so. It gives gives you a lot of options. It does. No it doubt. really allows you to save a lot more money, too, because there's so many hidden costs in buying a, and owning a house. So here's some examples of some, some life-changing things that you're going through. Let's say you just graduated from college and you aren't ready to plant your roots in one place yet. That would be a great time to rent. Uh, maybe you've moved to a new city and you aren't sure which neighborhood is right for you. Instead of locking into something, uh, you know, rent for a year or two. And, um, you know, in this area, we see a lot of folks in the military and they don't want to lose money on every home every time they're they're moved. So, you know, if you don't know what your situation is going to be, um, if you rent for a period of time, it just it takes away a big risk um, and takes away um, gives you some options in the future. So, you know, Dave also recommends waiting for at least a year after getting married to buy a home. You guys waited five. That's that's pretty cool. Uh, after all, it takes a year of being married to know how close to your mother-in-law you want to live, right? Yeah, that's true, no doubt. You want to you want to get a good feel for that before you lock into a permanent permanent place. I'll tell you that we um we moved around a little bit um in a different phase of my life, and we lived in North Augusta, which is where my parents live, and I'm I'm sure my parents are listening to me now, but I think we live like three point two three miles away from my parents is what we calculated so we we knew exactly how far it was away so um so you know when you do get married spend your first year getting to know uh, each other learning how to manage money um you know you have until death do you part to take your next big plunge spend some time up front get that emergency fund in place don't just go out and buy a house because you think it's the grown-up thing to do right yeah yeah that's a good one um, myth number two here is it's stupid to pass up on a good deal when the market is hot. And boy, how many times have we heard this oh, as yeah. a planner? You know, people come in and they're they're going to buy this investment property or this house because it's just such a great deal. Um, you know, you found the perfect home. The sellers are practically giving it away, right? Um, it just might be the deal of the century, even though Sally May, you know, got her clutches in your pocketbook. I mean, you're... You'd be dumb to walk away, right? Well, wrong. I mean, with real estate, I mean, you make money by buying the right thing at the right time and not taking advantage of the market, so to speak. I mean, great deals are really are a dime a dozen in in real estate or any investment for that matter. I mean, there's always something that looks like a great deal. Um, So you never want to succumb to the pressure of passing up on a great deal i mean there's there's always going to be another deal out there and what might be a good deal to someone else might not be a good deal for you yeah that's right, right. you know particularly knowing, knowing your circumstances knowing where you are and the position you are uh when those deals yeah present themselves that's exactly right never buy solely based on the market but um kind of what you're talking about gordon here is when you're financially ready and and so dave kind of lays out how you know when you can afford it first of all you're out of debt you have three to six months of expenses in your emergency fund plus enough cash to put 10 to 20 percent down payment on a uh, 15-year mortgage and um you know you also if you're paying cash up front um 
you know, your mortgage payment, you know, if you're putting 20% down, your mortgage payment should still be no more than 25% of your take-home pay. So those are some of the criteria that if you do see a deal and you're in a good financial situation, go for it. I mean, that's okay, but don't put yourself in stress without an emergency fund. It's just It's going to come back to bite you. Yeah, that's exactly right. You've got to make sure the timing is right. Um, you can't just jump into a house and, you know, not have enough money down. I mean, I really think 20% down is the right amount. Yeah. You know, you avoid the private mortgage insurance. Right. is a big deal. Right. Avoid PMI. You get a lower interest rate typically. Um, you know, it's just it's just a lot of benefits to that. I mean, you immediately have some equity in the house. You're not underwater um, if the home value drops a little bit. So you need to put 20% down. You need to get a 15-year mortgage so you start building equity quickly in a house. You don't want to be in a house and, you know, have a 30-year mortgage with 10% down and be underwater from day one. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's just not smart. You know, and there are realtor fees. When you go to sell a house, there's realtor fees are like 7%, right? So if you only put 10% down, you're going to be underwater from day one. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's just not a good position to be in. Um, yeah, and then also, I mean... Jumping into home ownership with debt and no emergency fund is kind of like it's kind of like jumping into a pool with no water in it. Quite frankly, ouch, you know, ouch. Yeah, I mean, you're going to hit rock bottom. I mean, you know, as soon as you get into a house, things are going to happen, right? That the air conditioning is going to break, the roof's going to leak. Um, you know, next thing you know, you're turning to your credit cards and loans to pay for it all. So the hole that you're in just keeps getting bigger. Um, there's nothing wrong with renting a while while you, you you work to get your finances in order. In fact, I mean, Dave Ramsey encourages it. He says, you know, take the time to lay the right foundation before you you take the leap, and your home will be a blessing instead of a curse. Yeah, and and like we said, we see that a lot of times a, a blessing turning into a curse. So I think we'll cover the rest of this when we come back from a break. We have one more myth that we're going to bust when we come back. Exactly, but if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call at 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD with John and Steve. We'll be right back after these messages. Stay with us. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Margaret, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey preferred local provider, and uh, Gordon Leppard, who's our new advisor in the office. And uh, we're continuing our discussion here about um, Dave Ramsey article about buying versus renting a home, the three common myths. About buying a home. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, uh, we were just kind of talking at the break a little bit, how a home can be a, a, a curse versus a blessing. And, you know, myth number one we looked at is, is buying a home is a grown-up thing to do. And that's just simply not the case. You know, um, when you're in transition in your life, having some options and renting is really, really smart thing to do. So don't feel like you have to buy it to make you feel like you're hit adulthood. The second one here on the list is um, it's stupid to pass up a good deal when the market's hot. And, again, that's false. you got to make sure you're in good financial situation. Out of debt, you know, you have an emergency fund sitting there, and then your payment is going to be no more than 25% of your your take-home pay. So there's, you know, if you're in good financial situations, go for it. But um, don't don't take a, a, a leap of faith. It's like um, it's like jumping into a pool without water. I mean, it's going to come back to bite you, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, I think 20% down, 15-year mortgage. I mean, you got to yeah. have an emergency fund already in place, like you said. Um, 
you got to be you got to wait for the right timing um in your life you know don't don't think you're throwing away your rent cuz you're not you're saving money it's a lot less expensive to rent typically cuz you have a smaller place yeah right and you don't have all the stuff that comes with a house Except myth number three says renting is cheaper because there's no upkeep, which is interesting. It depends on the situation that you're in. It is interesting, and I I disagree with this somewhat. You know, it depends on what you're renting, right? If you're, if you're, no doubt, if you're renting of the same five bedroom house that you're going to own or three bedroom house that you're going to own, yes. I mean, clearly owning is is. you know, maybe I, cheaper. I think I think short term. I think renting is, is cheaper. But what this is saying is long term. You know, if you're in a house long term, that you're probably going to come out better. But sure, short term. You know, whether or not you you should rent or buy a home may seem like an apples to apples comparison if you look at the monthly cost alone. But home ownership um, often tips the money scale because you know you pay for maintenance, taxes, and homeowners insurance on top of the mortgage payment. But long term cost uh, paint a different picture, and I think. You know, I think you know Dave is would probably agree that home owning a home long term is a good um, decision. You know, long term, but short term, you know, the flexibility it right. can really add to your you know it can add to your bottom line. Sure, I mean everybody wants to you know wants to own a home eventually, and if you're renting a home, I mean according to Tr- uh, Trulia. Um, if you bought a home today and you lived there for seven years, you'd save thirty eight percent compared to renting. Um, why is because they they say you have inflation on your side. So when you own a home, you don't have to worry about the landlord jacking up your rent each year. Um, your monthly cost is essentially locked in as far as, um, you know, as long as you live there, right? And as your home value goes up, your mortgage principal goes down, and that's money in your pocket down the road. However, I would say... You know, if you're if you're if you're renting a lot smaller places, you typically yeah. would do an apartment. You're saving money by renting. Yeah, you know, rent on the other hand does have inflation. Um, according to Zillow, the cost of rent grew twice as quickly as household income between 2000 and 2014, and um, currently makes up about 30 percent of the renter's income. So, I think what Dave's talking about here is it's long term. Um, a house can be a good investment. Typically, it's gone up in, in value, and you lock into, you know, a low interest rate in today's market versus renting as a strategy long term. But now I agree with the short term. I right. think you know, as we talked about in the other ones, it gives you a lot of options. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, so that's it's a true statement. It's just taken out of context. I right. think people use that as an excuse to buy houses all the time. So. It's um, but anyway, it's a great topic, and uh, you know, it just shows you really have to be ready to buy a house before you jump into that, and renting's not a bad option um, for, yep. for a number of years. Okay, and that leads us up here, though, to our prescription of the week. Yeah, we'll do this one pretty quick. We're getting tight on time here, but um, consider long-term care insurance. Uh, 70% of people who are older than 65 typically need some type of long-term care services, and, um, you know, people are, are scared about long-term care insurance, the folks that I talk with. Uh, some of the premiums that I see come across can be five, six, seven thousand dollars, depending on how big of a policy you get. Can be big. But some folks that I've talked with lately, I mean, you can get a policy in the fifteen hundred to two thousand dollar range. Um, you got to be fairly healthy, and it's got it's going to be a really small policy. But having some protection between you and your four hundred one k and assets can be a good strategy. But it's really dependent on each situation. Every situation is different. Right, and when I would say this, when it says seventy percent of people. Um, over age 65 will need some long-term care services. It's not saying that's an extended 
Oh, that's right. An that's extended right. stay in it a could, nursing home or something. Okay. Be somebody coming into your house or typically it's like a three month kind of thing. It's an end of life kind of thing. It's not. I mean, I think other statistics show that about ten percent of of elderly people actually have some extended stay in a facility like that. Um, so your odds are not, you know, as great as it kind of makes the insurance industry would like to make it sound. Yeah. So anyway, it's a good good prescription of the week, though. All right, and that leads us up here to our last topic, and that is um, how impatience hurts retirement savings. Um, this is an article. I don't know off the yeah from from uh, we use a, a marketing pro article that they uh, do a good job doing some research and coming up with data and um, you know keeping calm and, and carrying on and maybe good for your portfolio. I mean. Why do we see so many retirement savers underperform the market? Um, from 1993 to 2012, the S&P 500 achieved a compound annual return of a little bit over 8%. And across the same period, the average investor um, in U.S. stock funds only got 4.3% return. That's probably associated with the Dalbar study that we talk about. So what, what accounts for the difference in we're going to kind of cover that, but when I'm in patience. That's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, it's expressed in emotional investment decisions. Um, too many people trade themselves into mediocrity. I mean, they react to the headlines of the moment. They buy high, they sell low. Um, you know, Dalbar, which is the uh, famous investment research firm, they estimate that this accounts for about 2% of the 3.9% difference between the market and what people actually end up making on their investments. You know, it attributes another 1.3% to to mutual fund uh, operating costs Mm -hmm. or expense ratio, another 0.6% to turnover within the funds. So, in other words, bad market timing, you know, is about half of the shortfall between what the market gets and what people typically end up with. And typically what we see is impatience encourages market timing. Some investors consider buy and hold, passe, uh, but it's certainly worked pretty well since 2009. And, you know, how did the market timing work in comparison? Uh, citing Investment Company Institute calculations of equity fund inflows and outflows from January of 2007 through August uh, 2012, uh, U.S. News and World reported uh, it noted that it didn't work very well. During that stretch, mutual fund investors either sold market declines or bought after market um, increases 57 0.4% of the time. In addition, while the total return of the S&P 500, uh, including dividends, was kind of flat during that time frame, equity mutual fund investors lost about 36%. Now, Steve, we're talking a lot about history here. No one can predict the future, and we're not That's trying right. to do that. We're just talking about emotions. That's and, right. And, and you know, what, what is the, um, the crisis of the day or the crisis of the month? And historically, it's hurt people to try to time the market. It has, you know, and one of the big problems, John, is people don't buy and hold for very long. Um, according to Dalbar, the average holding period is 3.3 years, and investors in balanced funds, which have stocks and bonds in them, was about four and a half years. So, and unfortunately, they didn't come out any better, you know, when you compare the the, the Barclays uh, Bond Index Fund Index to um, the average uh, return that people got in balanced funds, it was 6.3% versus 2.3% in the Dalbar study from 1993 through mm-hmm. 2012. So 
you know, it's the same story. I mean, people are coming up way short because of the market timing and, and the cost. Yeah, so what are the takeaways here for retirement savers? I mean, it really amounts to a decent argument for dollar cost averaging. It's really the slow and steady investment method, which you buy shares over time, a little bit at a time. When the market sinks, you're buying more shares as they have become cheaper, and that means that you'll own more quality shares when they again, uh, you know, regain their value. And you have to stay invested, really, is what the moral of the story is here. I mean, you can't be trying to time the market or, or trying to, um, uh, you know, get in and out of the market any sort of way. You really need to have a long-term approach and stay put with your strategy yeah. over the long term. So, all right, good topic. And uh, that brings us up to a close here for this week's edition of Money MD with John and Steve. Tune in next Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m. to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. And do check us on our website, moneymd.net. You can email us your questions. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at moneymd.net. Or you can give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Have a good one. Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed local provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, security sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC.